32 this morning is where we will be here in just a minute. Psalm 32. A recent article in the New York Times, I'm going to read extensively from this this morning to get us started because I found it so fascinating. Uh, when you're a pastor, you often read the news a little bit differently because you're always sort of looking for theological themes and sermon illustrations, and this one checked all the boxes. So let me begin reading from this recent article. The supplicants clustered outside the enormous closed doors. They paced the hallway, fidgeted on benches, knitted their hands, and waited waited for their 10-minute chance at mercy. They had come to the Minnesota capital of St. Paul on the steamy summer day to be forgiven, restored, redeemed. The doors opened to reveal Minnesota officialdom personified, the governor, the attorney general, and the state's chief justice, the three members of the board of pardons. They sat unsmiling at a long table facing a much smaller table that featured tissue boxes, and the digital clock set at 10 minutes. 10 minutes, the time allotted the supplicants to prove that they were worthy, that, like St. Paul, they had traveled their own rutted road to Damascus. This buzzer-beating pressure intensified a raw pardon process, unlike those in most other states, with the powerless beseeching the powerful in public and the decision rendered in the moment. The power, among the powerless would be Jim Lorch, convicted in 2005 of manufacturing methamphetamine. Now a well-respected drug counselor and program director, he'd been in recovery for 16 years, was engaged to be married, and feared being forever defined by a distant mistake. A pardon can mean, mean a better job and housing opportunities, the restoration of gun rights, the ability to chaperone school trips, but can also offer something more intangible, the formal return to society's good graces. Further on in the article, they quote Jim Lorge. He said this, do I have to carry this burden for the rest of my life? Mr. Lorge, 48, asked before his hearing. I want to be forgiven. I just want to be forgiven. Now, the article will go on to describe the 10 minutes that he had before the, the Board of Pardons and what to wait to the end of the sermon to find out whether or not they pardoned him. His story is fascinating because he became a Christian during his time in prison, went through a Christian rehab program, completely turned his life around, and is sort of a model of what a changed life would look like. But that statement jumped out at me. In fact, that was the title of the article. I want to be forgiven. I just want to be forgiven. As a, a fitting theme as we begin Psalm 32, which is one of David's psalms of confession. For people who know their guilt, for people who understand that they are lost and need a Savior, that's the cry of their hearts. I want to be forgiven. I just want to be forgiven. That is the cry of the penitent heart. That is the cry of someone who has come face to face with their sin and realize they can't earn their, earn their forgiveness. It's got to be handed down, not from the board of pardons, but from the God of heaven. So Psalm 32, let's read this. Follow along as I read Psalm 32. It's a Psalm of David. Maschil, which means perhaps either a song, something to do with a musical notation, or it could be referring to the fact this is a psalm that is designed to teach us something. This is a lesson that we're supposed to get from David's life. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, in other words, when I didn't confess my sin, 
My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah means pause, consider. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not hid? I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this, or because of this, or therefore, shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely the floods of great waters shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way that thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Beautiful psalm celebrating the joy of forgiveness, the reality of pardon that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is likely written in the the time after David's infamous cover his sin. He gets her husband to come home from the battlefield, tries to get him to spend the night with her so there would be no questions about who's the dad. That doesn't work. So then he has the husband murdered, and then he marries the woman Bathsheba, all in an attempt to cover up his sin. If the sin were not bad enough, committing adultery, the cover-up is even worse, murder, deceit. And we get the impression reading the psalm that for weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months, David seethed in his guilt, feeling the pressure, the conviction, the knowledge that what he had done displeased the Lord. And finally, God in his mercy brought a, brought a prophet along, a man by the name of Nathan, who came along and said to David after telling him a heart-rending story, says, thou art the man. David repented, David confessed his sin, and God forgave him. And so here he is on the other side of that horrific experience, dealing with all of the wreckage. By the way, there would be severe consequences for David's sin. The baby that they conceived died. That's that's horrible. From that point on, David's reign was marked by attacks and division, even from his own household. His son Absalom tried to kill him. Just disaster after disaster was downstream from the sin. Yet David... In spite of his life being a wreck from this point on, the consequences that he would deal with, that would dog him for the rest of his life, could say, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. He could, he could stand there and celebrate like whatever else has gone on, God has forgiven me and I am therefore blessed. Celebrating the greatest blessing of all, the blessing of forgiveness. What is astounding when you read that story is that God gave a pardon to the death-deserving David. This is not one of those guys where, oops, we got the, you know, the, 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 the trial didn't quite follow the norms and there was some evidence that sort of is exonerating. There's no exonerating evidence here. There's no mitigating factors here. He is as, as guilty as can possibly be of violating God's law again and again and again and again. And yet God forgave him. And we might think that David's an extraordinary example. Being like, well, that's, that's just David. God just kind of did that for him. The whole point of the psalm of being a maskeel, a teaching psalm, is, is basically what David is saying is what God did for me, he'll do for anyone. And basically that's how the psalm goes, is put together. Verses 1 to 5 is David saying, here's my experience of what happened in my life. 
And then verses 6 down to 11 is his exhortation to say, now here's how you need to respond. Uh, the psalm begins and ends with a celebration of forgiveness, and then it moves in to talk about the, the dangers of, of stubbornness. Later, you're coming in from the end towards the middle. You see him saying, don't be like uh, a mule. And then we see David in the second part from the front end saying, here's me when I was rebellious. And then right at the heart of the psalm is confession and confession's effects. So it's arranged in this, this beautiful sort of mirroring ABC, CBA kind of arrangement. David experienced both God's heavy hand of conviction and God's gentle touch of pardon. He learned that, very simply, impenitence, hard-heartedness, brings misery. And repentance unleashes joy. This psalm gives us the, shows us the path, the road map to forgiveness, to freedom. Now, some of you are here today where you're, you're, you're feeling that need of, I need forgiveness, I just want to be forgiven. Or the freedom of, there, I feel sort of, shackled by something that I did in the past, some sin that has sort of continued to define me that I've never quite gotten released from. Man, if that's you, listen to this. Now, some of you are here today being like, praise God, I know that I'm forgiven. I'm right with God. This psalm is also for you to say, if you are forgiven, here's how we ought to respond as we come to the table, which is a time of thanksgiving, to come with a heart that is truly grateful because I think we lose sight of the wonder of God's forgiveness. So how can we enjoy God's forgiveness and pardon? That's the question. Let's walk through some of the steps the psalm lays out for us. The, the, the first step here is we've got to see forgiveness as a blessing. Notice that word in verses 1 and 2, blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed is one of those sort of Christianese words that gets thrown around where people say, man, I feel so blessed, thankful and blessed, hashtag, right? You know, it's Thanksgiving coming along. And we're rightfully recognize all of God's material blessings, that term blessed denotes one who is privileged, one who is fortunate. You can even render it just sort of an exclamation of, oh, the happiness of one who is forgiven, one who's envied. What is the good life? What is the life that is like, this is what I'm really after, what I really want, that everybody should be able to enjoy? And see, we often think of blessing as a full bank account. It's a, a, a large house, a happy family, a nice boat in the driveway, a big screen TV hanging on the wall, grandkids who come over for... That's often how we sort of define blessing, and those are indeed God's gifts. But there's something far more profound going on here. So just to remind you, David, from this point on in his life, has a hard go of it physically, has a hard go of it relationally, yet he can say, oh, blessed is the man who is forgiven. He's saying the greatest blessing, the height of happiness that you can know in this life is the assurance, yes, indeed, the assurance, you can know that your sins are forgiven. You know, to go through life being like, man, have I done enough? Have I, have I worked enough? Forgiveness is a blessing. So what, what are the qualities of someone who is blessed? I want to just point out a couple of things very simply. The person who is blessed is a sinner. Not, not, not someone who is, hey, they've never made any mistakes. That guy's blessed. He must be a good guy. The person who's blessed is a sinner. Notice the terms. Blessed is he whose transgression is covered, or is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the, the man to whom the Lord imputes, imputes not iniquity. These are three synonyms that all talk about different aspects of sin. There's transgression, which is rebellion against God, where God's like, this is the law. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and David's like, I'm going to commit adultery anyway. Just straight up rebellion. You know what is right. There is sin, which is simply the idea of going astray. Man, I'm supposed to go this way, but I've just kind of wandered off. And Then there's iniquity, which is the idea of guilt. 
the idea of criminality, the idea of a, of a nature that is bent away from God. And these sort of three terms together give us a, a full-orbed portrait of sin. Sin's not just me saying, here's the rule, I'm going to break it. Sometimes sin is me wandering off the path of, here's the standard, and I just fall short. Other times, sin is just this nature in this heart that wants to do my own thing. Whatever form our sin takes, listen, not, not, we don't all sin in the same ways. Some people who might struggle with the sin of same-sex attraction may not struggle as much with the sin of greed or self-righteousness. Others who struggle with self-righteousness and judgmentalism would never dream of struggling with another sin. Someone who, who battles addictions may not struggle with, with, with sin in other areas of their lives, and so on and so forth. And it's easy for us to look at the way that other people sin and be like, well, I would never do that, but the way I sin is respectable. I just gossip. Well, you know, gossip's a sin just as much as another sin is a sin. And they all require divine forgiveness. The point here is forgiveness must come from God. Notice the, 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 look at the text again. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. We don't forgive ourselves. God is the one who forgives us. Whose sin is covered. We can't cover our own sins. Later on, David will say, I'm not going to hide my sin. Verse 5, same word. Either you can try to cover your sin yourself, or you can say, God, I'm going to leave it to you to cover that sin. So who's a blessed person? The blessed person is a sinner who has rebelled against God, who has gone astray, who is a criminal, who has bent away from him. But the blessed person is also this, pardoned. The blessed person is not just a sinner, but a pardoned, a forgiven sinner. That term forgiven is the idea of lifting away. Imagine sin like a boulder that has pinned you down and you cannot get out from under it. No amount of pushing is going to nudge that boulder. Someone else has got to come and lift it off. And God lifts the sin away. He carries it away. He carries it far away into the depths of the sea. He takes from us the crushing weight of sin and guilt and condemnation and judgment. There's that word covered. This is not just God sort of papering over it, but it's sort of the idea that sin is not only removed, but it is forever rendered out of sight. Listen, when God forgives, he forgives forever. Uh, Sometimes you'll be like, you know, an argument with someone and... I'm sorry, but then, you know, next argument, hey, I'm going to bring that up again and use it as a hammer to beat you over the head with. God does not bring up our offenses against us ever again. When they are under the blood, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's not going to bring up our past sins and future arguments. And then verse 2 has this word, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Okay, imputeth is not a word that we use all the time, but it's an accounting kind of term. He's not going to put to our account our iniquity. Very simply, it's sort of like you go out and you run the credit card up, and your limit's supposed to be $1,000, but you put $10,000 on the credit card. You've got no way of paying it back. Those are your charges. That is your debt. You rightly owe it. But rather than that $10,000 being put on the credit card statement, God says, I'm going to absorb the expense. Somebody's going to, someone's going to take the loss. Understand that. There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's no such thing as debt forgiveness that doesn't get somebody paying for it. God's saying, I'm not going to impute the debt to your account. That's grace. It's the same word that's used in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Not only does God sort of withhold the debt that we owe, but he positively puts righteousness to our account. That's incredible. Paul, by the way, in Romans chapter 4, is going to unpack that, this incredible doctrine of justification by faith. Today's Reformation Sunday, time of year where... We who like what 
happened in the Reformation, look back to say, listen, these, these truths that, that Luther and Calvin and Zwingli sort of rediscovered of justification by faith and salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone according to the word of God alone to the glory of God alone are wonderful truths that are biblical. Man, this is one of the core tenets of the, of the Reformation. Rather than what was going on in the medieval church where people had to go pay penance and, and, and uh, do penance and sort of buy indulgences and try to earn and never could quite know if you were forgiven. What a wonderful truth. Blessed is the man who, who can know this. One of the most glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we can know that our sins are forgiven that we are righteous in God's sight, that he looks at us and he, instead of saying, yes, you're guilty, he says, you are not guilty even though I really have sinned. That I can be righteous and holy in the eyes of a perfect God. But there's another facet of the person who is blessed. The blessed person is a sinner. The blessed person is pardoned. But notice the end of verse 2. In whose spirit there is no guile, no deception. Let me put it this way, the, the blessed person is repentant. The idea of guile or deception, you know, what's our normal, our, our normal response when we are confronted with our sin? Someone comes along, hey, you did such and such. Immediately, so sort of defenses go up, right? Immediately, to so try to cover it over. It's immediately to try to downplay it. It's immediately to try to deny our, our sin, to be like, well, I didn't really mean, and you need to understand this, and there's context, and it's someone else's fault, and all these other things that we want to try to... The one who is blessed, the one who enjoys this forgiveness and pardon is the one in whose spirit there is no guile. The one who says, I'm not going to try to hide anything. I'm going to be honest about my sin. 1 John chapter, 8, 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 says that if we, if we say that we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar. Hey, God tells us all have sinned. All of us have sinned. We have broken his law. When we come along and say, you know, actually I haven't, we are committing blasphemy. We're saying that the God who is the very epitome of truth got it wrong. No, the better thing is to do is 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. That means to not just admit, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. No, fully, openly confess and acknowledge them. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, here's the point I'm making here. The forgiven man is one who is honest, guileless about the seriousness of sin. It's not just acknowledging that sin's there, but it's acknowledging, and this sin is a big deal that it requires an act of God, literally, an act of God to deal with. Not just to sweep it under the rug, not just to sort of ignore it and overlook it and give me a mulligan on it. No, sin is so serious that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place. We must see forgiveness as a blessing, as a gift that comes from God to us that we cannot earn, that we receive as a gift. Listen, if you, if you today know that you are forgiven, this will put a lot of things in perspective for you. You are more blessed. You are more privileged. You are more envied. You have a greater and eternal happiness than, than, than Elon Musk with all of his wealth, than the President of the United States with all of his power, than Taylor Swift with all of her fame, or any movie actor with their, their good looks and the celebrity they have. You are more blessed and privileged than that. You say, well, my life doesn't feel like it because I'm going through a really hard time. Man, step back and look at the big picture. To be blessed, what is the definition of it? It's to be forgiven. To be forgiven is to be blessed. It doesn't matter if you have a lot of stuff. It doesn't matter if your, your health is, is what you would want it to be. If you are forgiven, you are, according to Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, blessed. 
It's a gift. But here's a second truth. By the way, these first two points are going to take the longest because they are the theological foundation for this entire psalm. To enjoy the forgiveness and freedom that God wants for us, not only must we see God's forgiveness as a blessing, we've got to fully confess, honestly confess our sin. Okay, so verses 3 to 5, David gives us his experience when I kept silent. Man, in those months when he was plotting Uriah's murder, in those months when he was trying to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy, in those months when he was trying to lie and deceive and cover his sin on his own so that he wouldn't sort of lose face. When I kept silent, when I refused to admit, when I refused to confess my sin, this description here is powerful. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. This physical pain that he felt. You ever feel guilt so profoundly it almost hurts? Where you're feeling the panic attacks, where you're feeling the fear of, oh, what if someone finds out what is really going on in my life? That sense of conviction and shame that we feel. You wonder how often you know, when people sort of want society to celebrate their sin, what that is is a function of a guilty conscience that knows things are not right, and so I'm going to try to get other people to make me feel better about this. He says, when, when, when I was silent, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Now, this is interesting. He's saying, my tongue is silent, but my conscience is roaring at me. That's the word used for a roaring of a lion. Silent lips, but a screaming conscience is what he is describing. Now, David, he's trying to cover his sin up. But listen, it is absolute folly to attempt to cover our sin and conceal our sin from the eyes of a God who knows everything. Trying to cover our sin before the omniscient gaze of a holy God is like trying to hide a rotting carcass in your garage with a little bit of Febreze. Sorry, like you can put the whole can on there and it's going to come and you're going to smell it. You're going to know all about it. It's like having a gaping crack in the, in the foundation of your house and trying to dab it with a little bit of paint to be like, that'll, that'll make it, that'll fix it, that'll make it better. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden trying to sort of make aprons out of fig leaves. That's a pretty ridiculous outfit. That's not going to do much for you. It's like your insurance. It's going to hardly cover anything. We cannot hide our sin from a holy God. These silent lips trying to conceal, trying to deal with sin on his own. There are so many ways in our world today that people try to cover sin on their own. Some people just outright deny it. No, what I'm doing is not actually sinful. That's old-fashioned and puritanical to say that living with someone who's not my spouse is actually a problem. Okay, we're going to try to sort of deny it or redefine our sin. Others will try to sort of conceal their sin by getting society to put a stamp of approval on it. Let's get the Supreme Court to redefine marriage, and that'll make my sin okay. Or let's take an entire month out of the year to have everyone celebrate my preferred sin. Others will try to cover over their sin with a veneer of religiosity. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to look the part. I'm going to get together. I'm going to do all the things that a religious person will do, and that'll sort of make it look good. Others will... Try to deal with their sin by, by shifting the blame to someone else. goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The woman thou gavest to me. It's my wife's fault that I sinned. It's my parents' fault that I sinned. It's my kids' fault that I sinned. It's my employer's fault that I sinned. Trying to shift the blame, put the blame on somebody else. I'm going to blame society. I'm going to blame my forebearers. I'm going to blame somebody else. David's trying all of those strategies, covering up his sin, hoping that God won't know. Verse 4 says, day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. 
He acknowledges the, the pressure and the guilt and the cognitive dissonance that he's feeling as a result of the conviction of God. God's hand heavy upon him, bringing pressure, helping David see his sin. The sense of guilt sort of leaving etches into his conscience, like those, those valleys that are created by, by glaciers. They, those are marks, those are scars of the mercy of God, that he loves you too much. If you are feeling that, it is because God loves you too much to leave you in your sin. The most terrifying place to be is being able to sin and get away with it. Being able to sin and feel no guilt and no shame. That's a scary place to be. But so long as you're feeling the conviction of God, so long as you're feeling this isn't right, there is hope. We come now to verse 5. He's built the tension up. God's hand is heavy on me. My body is wasting away. He's sort of burning up in a fever that's brought on by the, the tension that he's feeling. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. It's like at long last... You can feel the relief, the, the pressure of verses 3 and 4 is so intense, but the release that we get here is so beautiful. It's like there's a fingernails on the chalkboard, there's dissonance where everybody in the orchestra is playing in a different key, and finally here it resolves into a beautiful melody. Here his rebellion finally crumbles, here finally he drops the hands of resistance against God. This confession here is like the bursting of a dam, the, the, the water, the pressure that's behind it. It's released, and very soon the blessings will flow once again. So the, the, the phrase here, I acknowledge, sometimes we think acknowledge, sure, okay, yeah, whatever, you got me. The idea here, maybe, maybe think of the word this way, I made known my sin unto thee. This is a voluntary disclosure of sin to God. This is not just, fine, you caught me, I guess I'm, I'm sorry about the consequences. That is a very different category than biblical confession. Notice as well, I acknowledged my sin, and mine iniquity have I not hid, and I will confess my transgressions. Those pronouns are, are, are important. This is not just David. I'm just sort of generically going to confess sin, and if I offended anyone, I'm so sorry. This is him saying, I'm going to take full responsibility for what I have done. He's not going to sit there and be like, well, it's really Bathsheba's fault. If she had done her bathing elsewhere, this wouldn't have happened. He doesn't blame the political situation as saying, you know what, if I didn't have this war going on over uh, against Ammon, I, I wouldn't have been under so much pressure. He doesn't try to blame anyone. He acknowledge my transgression. Listen, if you come along to confess your sin, but in your confession you're blaming someone else, you've not confessed your sin. This is not a reluctant admitting, fine, you caught me, but an honest accounting of sin to God. Notice what he said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. Do not forget that no matter who you have sinned against, ultimately you have sinned against God. The ultimate wronged party in any sin is God Almighty. He's the one that we, we must take our confession to including those we've also wronged. Did you notice that we got these terms, transgression, iniquity, and sin repeated here? Those same words that were in verses 1 and 2? He's not just confessing part of his sin. He's confessing all of it and all of its ugliness, all of its messiness, all of the, the hideousness of it. He's not confessing just a part of what he did. Let me just give you sort of the most respectable part of what I did. He's presenting his sin in all of its ugliness, confessing it fully and completely and comprehensively to God. To God we must run. To God we must confess. To God we must bear our souls. To God we must lay out our every sin in its detail and its shame. Our sin, beloved, 
is against the most pure, most holy, most perfect, most eternal, most infinite being in all the universe, which is why the punishment against sin must be eternal damnation, because it's against an eternal God. And of course, comprehensive confession will take into account those we've wronged. David had sinned against his nation. David had sinned against his family. David had sinned against Bathsheba. David had sinned against Uriah. There was a whole number of people that he had sinned against. He's confessed to the greater one, which is God. Well, then he would eagerly confess to those ones. Listen, it makes no sense to say, I've confessed my sin to God, but I'm going to continue the cover-up towards others. But here's the best part of this. I love this phrase. Look at the end of verse 5. He confessed to sin. There's no guarantee, though. You go before the board of pardons, you make your 10-minute case, and there's no guarantee that they're going to give you the pardon. Now, that story that I referenced at the beginning of the message, uh, there's a number of people in that story who do not get pardons that the pardon board says, man, we're glad you've made progress, but you don't warrant a pardon. Here's the beautiful thing here, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. David confesses, and God forgives. We're so familiar with the promise of God forgiving, we just lose sight of how spectacular this is. Like, well, I just sort of think it and God forgives, God forgives. God's sort of like a forgiveness machine. I put the quarter in and forgiveness comes out. No, forgiveness is an act of his grace. It's undeserved. David had no reason to expect or to presume upon God forgiving him. None at all. On what basis can David say, you, you forgave the iniquity of my sin? What basis can he claim that? He can claim it not on the basis of a feeling, not on the basis of an emotion, not on the basis of, of some other personal experience. Here's what it's based on. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, God himself said to him, the Lord also has put away thy sin. One of the most stunning points in the Old Testament, David deserved to die. He says, and thou shalt not die. The wages of sin is death, he deserved to die. And God says, and you won't die. I'm going to forgive your sin. He is able to say, thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, not because that's what he hoped for, not because he felt that, but because God said that. And we have the promise of God that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He'll always act this way. He's just, not to just sort of ignore sin, but actually deal with it, to to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is spectacular. This is the gospel. This is the good news that is at the core of everything that we do as Christians. It's at the core of every the reason why we gather Sunday after Sunday is we have a God in heaven who forgives sin and has forgiven it because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us, and he will forgive any sinner who comes to him. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh, there's nothing else that you need except Jesus and faith in him. You see, sometimes people will confess their sins, but then will hold on selfishly and pridefully to this notion that I have to wait for God to pardon me. I've confessed my sin, but it's, I'm going to wait a few weeks before I go back to church because I'm pretty messed up and I've got to sort of prove to God that I'm serious. That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is if we confess, he forgives. If we call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Any sinner who comes in faith... Any sinner who comes in repentance finds mercy and grace. Now, we've got to come genuinely. 
Uh, we've got the example of Saul as sort of a, as a, a foil here. Saul was the king before David, and he would sort of go through, oh, no, everybody's sort of looking at me bad. I'm sorry, God. I got caught. Not real repentance. We have the example of Judas who goes in and throws the money down and feels remorse, not genuine repentance. There's a difference between true and false repentance. But any sinner who genuinely comes finds grace. Oh, forgiveness flows from God's heart like water from a spring. It is consistent with his character. It is as extensive as his infinitude. There's never going to be a sin that you commit that God's like, "Mm, that one's too bad. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. The sins that our society would look at and say, oh, those ones are bad. Every society has lists of sins that are acceptable and ones that are not. Right now, sexual immorality is on the acceptable list, but being a racist is on the unacceptable. They're both sins in the eyes of a holy God. You can't be forgiven in our woke culture for being a racist, but you can in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our society, the worst thing to be is intolerant, but God can forgive even intolerant, bigoted people. God's grace is far more extensive than anything this society offers, not just shallow tolerance, but real forgiveness that deals with the root of our sin. So repudiate your sin and run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Which brings us to our third step here. We now get into the second half of the psalm where David begins to lay out the lessons. It's like, that's his experience, that's the foundation. Now here's what he wants his readers to take away. Therefore, beginning in verse 6, in light of all that, everyone that's godly should pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. So here's his point here is seek God's face and do it now. He says, here's the lessons from my experience. Don't tarry, don't wait, don't try to fight God. Seek his face now. Call out to him now. Turn to him now. Don't stay silent like David did for months and months, digging your heels in against God. So David's teaching from his experience. He says, my experience is a pattern for other people. This is not some weird exception where God did this this one time. This is the example of God's forgiveness and mercy. So seek him continually. Rather than stay silent, call out to him. See, sometimes it's easy to self-righteously say, I'm going to try to deal with this, deal with this myself. Some wonderful quotes from, from Martin Luther, the guy who kicked off the Protestant Reformation. He talks about his efforts to try to save himself when he was a monk. And he makes the statement, he said that if someone could have been saved by monkery, it was me. If there was somebody who could by their efforts atone for their sin, it could have been me. He said this, while I was a monk, I no sooner felt assailed by any temptation than I cried out, I am lost. Immediately I had recourse to a thousand methods to stifle the cries of my conscience. I went every day to confession, but that was of no use to me. So I tried everything, but he came to the realization that the just shall live by faith. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. And he made this statement. When he made that discovery, he wrote this, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn. And have gone through open doors into paradise. Now the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Seek God while he may be found. There's an urgency. Now notice he's addressing in verse 6, everyone that's godly. say, well, if I'm godly, why do I need to seek God's face? Beloved, because we continue to sin. We continue to sin. 
You know who needs forgiveness? Christians. You know who needs to confess sin? Christians. Not that we lose our salvation, need to get it again, but the, the washing, the cleansing from sin that, that besets us. It doesn't stop when we're converted. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our, our debtors. That's why every Sunday we have a, a time where we have corporate confession. That's why every month we celebrate the Lord's Supper to examine our hearts. Why hopefully every day there's a time in your life where you lay bare your soul before God. Seek him while he may be found. Now notice what happens when you do. Everyone who's godly should pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh him. Those who confess sin to God will not be swept away by the waters of his judgment. Trying to deal with your sin on your own is like people outside the ark, Noah's ark, sort of thinking, I'll I'll be able to, I'll be okay through the flood. No, there's refuge only found in that ark. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. This is awesome. When you run to Jesus, he forever becomes your protector, your savior, and nothing will be able to pluck you out of his hand. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of, songs of deliverance. You know what that means? You're then placed into a group of people who around you are singing the songs of salvation. When God saves you as an individual, he doesn't just leave you to go wander around by yourself. He puts you within the family of God. He surrounds you with fellow worshipers who have also been delivered. That is what a church is. That's what a church is. This is not a church full of perfect people. It's not a bunch of people who have it together. It's a bunch of sinners who deserve hell, who have tasted of the mercy of God, and cannot get over it to such a degree that we get together every Sunday to sing about it. Like, where else in the world does that kind of thing happen? Where people, you know, get together every, every week to be like, let's sing about our team win a football game. Like, no, that just doesn't happen. We have something that is worth singing about week after week after week, and for all eternity compassed about with songs of deliverance. We come to verses 8 and 9, we see, fourthly, you've got to heed God's guidance. Here's the point that David is making in verses 8 and 9. He says, okay, I'm going to teach you. I think this is David. A lot of people think this is God speaking, but there's no change of speakers indicated here. This is David saying, people who are listening, let me give you a lesson. Here's the lesson. Here's the instruction. Don't be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding. This is very, very clearly him saying is don't be a knucklehead. Don't be hard-headed. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't be stubborn. Don't be like those animals where they have to have a bitten bridle lest they come near you, lest they, they harm you. This is listen well to what God is saying and do not be stubborn. Don't be someone who requires God's heavy hand of discipline, but someone who will respond eagerly at the first pang of conscience. Oh, to have a tender conscience when, when the Holy Spirit hits that warning, that warning light to say, mm, you're stepping out of the path that you immediately come back. Don't be someone who switches off the light and keeps barreling down the wrong path. So heed God's guidance. God is giving you guidance even right now as this message is being preached. If you're going down the wrong path to turn back and get on the, the right path. If you're trusting in yourself to turn from your unbelief and trust in Jesus alone, I'll instruct you, I'll teach you. This is not, we often want God's guidance about, well, give me a better job. No, what God's guidance is about is how to have a right relationship with him and to enjoy, experience true blessing. But I want to finish here on this last point, verses 10 and 11. And this is not so much the means of attaining forgiveness, but a result of it. 
celebrate God's grace. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, and David knew. He experienced the sorrows when he was wicked of being out of God's will. But he, now this is fascinating. You think, what's the opposite of the wicked? The righteous. But notice the opposite of the wicked is not righteous, but he that, what, trusteth in the Lord. How is it that you can be blessed? How is it that you can be counted in God's sight as righteous? It's not by work, 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 work. It is by saying, God, I can't, and I'm going to trust in Jesus and him alone. It is by faith and faith alone. Okay, so he says, okay, the, the, the wicked will be compassed about with sorrows, or there will be many sorrows for the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Do you want to be, go through life being surrounded by the mercy and the grace and the love of God that sustains you and protects you? Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Put your faith in him. Verse 11, be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous. Now he uses that word righteous, but it comes on the other side of confession, and on the other side of faith, and there's this declaration of righteous. David, if you were just looking at his life, you'd be like, he's not a righteous guy. His life is messed up. Yet he can count himself among those who are righteous because he has been forgiven. And shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Now look at these words. Be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. These are emotion and affections. This is not just, I'm going to robotically go through the motions of sort of going to church and then going back. This is gladness and exuberance and worship, celebration. The Psalms are full of examples of celebration of singing and clapping and dancing and playing all kinds of instruments in celebration of who God is and what he has done. Now, here's the point. If you have been forgiven, that should unleash worship in your life. Just unleash it. It's just like, (laughs) I've been, and maybe if it doesn't, you have lost sight of the fact of how bad your sin was and how unexpected and scandalous God's grace is. Forgiveness unleashes worship. Grace unleashes praise. Mercy sets us singing. So on a basic level, come to church every Sunday and sing your heart out, even if you cannot sing well. Every day when you gather, when you, when you come before God's presence, come in gratitude. I was just reading this morning in Psalms. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. The mercy of the Lord endureth forever. And you're like, oh, here's that again. No, this is awesome. God's mercy to me endures forever in spite of what I am. Like, that is fantastic. So there are a couple of ways we can celebrate. One of them is worship, but the other one is what David models us in this psalm. If you've been forgiven, worship. But if you've been forgiven, here's something else you can and should do. Teach. Teach other people what God has done for you. I don't mean necessarily stand up with a blackboard and a a piece of chalk, but I mean tell other people, guys, here's what God did for my soul, and he can do it for you as well. David's model is our model. His testimony, his experience, rather than kind of, it would be embarrassing. You can see David have really good reasons to be like, I want to say, be sort of hush-hush about the whole David and Bathsheba bit. But instead, he's like, you know what? I'm going to be honest about this. This will be a moment to teach. I'll guide you with my eye. I'll instruct you. I'm going to write a masculine psalm. He's going to write Psalm 51 and Psalm 38 and Psalm 6, these different psalms that express his repentance. You tell other people about it. Tell other people about your Savior. Tell other people about your sin and about his grace and his mercy. Now, let me just give you a little word on this. Don't, don't major on the 
here I was in this life of sin, and we go on and on and on and on for 20 minutes, and everyone is kind of horrified by it, and then like, oh, and then Jesus saved me. I'd be like, okay, yes, here's my sin. This is what it was like. But here's the mercy and the grace of Jesus. His mercy is more. His grace is abundant. Focus in on that. Beginning of our message, we introduce you to Jim Lorge, that former meth cook and convicted felon who came to Christ, whose life was utterly wrecked before it was utterly transformed. So Jim had his 10 minutes before the pardon board to plead his case. Return to the, the article. When it was over, Mr. Lorge retreated to the hall and wiped his reddened eyes. He received reassuring hugs from his fiancée, whom he planned to marry in the fall, his teenage son, whom he had nearly lost, and his weeping mother, whose life he had turned upside down. She hugged tight. Together they walked down a long flight of marble steps and out into the sunlight. For the rest of the day and well into the next, he sent the same text to the many people in his restored life. All it said was, I got the pardon. Beloved, can you say, I got the pardon? I've come to Jesus as a sinner, and I didn't deserve this, but I got the pardon, not because of me, but because of Jesus. I got the pardon, and let's not, let's not stop telling everyone about it, about his pardoning grace and his mercy. Would you bow with me? We are preparing to go to the, the Lord's table together.